your Bibles, Revelation 20. And we come this week to chapters, to begin chapters 20 to 22. And you may know that these chapters constitute the seventh and final section of the book. Remember, the book of Revelation contains seven cycles wherein the time span between Jesus' first and second comings is repeated. Thus, chapter 20 starts back as the previous sections with Jesus' first coming. And we're going to see actually at the end of chapter 20, his second coming, and then in chapters 21 and 2, the beginning of the new heavens and earth. Uh, Chapter 20 does begin with Jesus' first coming. Keep that in mind, though it doesn't expressly say that, but you'll see that here in a few minutes. Revelation 20, and as we look at it, we'll consider it under these three divisions, Satan bound in the first three verses. Secondly, the saints reigning in the middle section, verses 4 to 6, and then 7 to the end, we're going to find Satan loosed. Notice... Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them. Now we're going to switch from Satan's binding to the saints reigning in heaven. The focus now turns to heaven. Verse 4. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ i.e. in heaven, for a thousand years. That's very important to keep in mind. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7, Now we're going to come back to earth at Jesus' second coming. Now in the thousand years have expired. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up from the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This again is the second coming and the judgment of the wicked, as we've seen it already six times. This is the seventh time. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire with brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so it ends with Jesus' second coming and judgment. And then, as we'll see, God willing, beginning next week, chapters 21 and 2, go on to speak about the salvation and the eternal bliss of the righteous. Now, before I come to chapter 20, let me point out what I think the elephant in the room. And that is, this is a, an exceedingly highly debated text. In fact, it's really from this text that we get some uh, common systems that you may have heard of, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial. These, these views of end times are largely, not exclusively, taken from this text because you have the term thousand years. Now, it's not my intent to examine the two wronger views, if I could use that term. Less accurate views, I guess, is better English. But to simply explain the passage and try to let it speak for itself. Now, but before I do that, let me just very quickly give you a, just a few sentences, definition for those three. Premillennial is certainly the less likely, though it is an ancient possibility in its best form. Dispensational pre-mill was invented just a little while ago. We can throw that out the window as not in any way likely. But classic pre-mill is also, also called covenantal pre-mill or classic pre-mill. And there have been good men, in fact, a lot of our Baptist fathers held to that view. And that simply means, as you can see in the name, pre-millennial. That Christ comes back before there's either a literal thousand-year reign on earth or just some time frame wherein Christ rules on earth prior to the consummation. Post-millennial, again, as the name would indicate, that, that view uh, sees the millennial taking place before, or perhaps I can put it better this way, Jesus' second coming taking place after the thousand years. So this view understands that somewhere in the future here, coming up, there's going to be a thousand years. Most of them don't believe it's a literal thousand years, but there's going to be a time of prosperity on earth. And then Christ comes back. So this view is exceedingly optimistic, and there's big problems with that, as we'll see even in this text. And then the third view is all millennia, which is really a poor, poor um, title or description because all millennial means no millennial. Uh, and uh, this is the more consistent view with our confession and I think with the Bible. But it, uh, it's, it's, better, it's better understood not as a no millennial view, but as a present millennial view. This view understands that we're in the millennial presently, that the thousand years reference here is just another way of describing that time between Jesus' first and second comings. And the reigning of the saints in the millennial age is in heaven, according to this text. So this text isn't describing a time in the future when saints will reign on earth. This text clearly, brethren, teaches a time when the saints will reign in heaven while Satan is bound and the gospel advances on earth. And that's at present. So that's the view that we're going to, I think, is most consistent with the text and with the scriptures and with our confession. Now, 
That brings us then to the first of those three headings, Satan bound, verses 1 to 3. And notice three things about the binding of Satan. When, how long, and why was he bound? Now, before we go any further, keep in mind, brethren, that uh, we're in the book of Revelation, and it's highly symbolic and figurative, and especially with regards to the numbers. Thus far, we've seen many numbers in the book of Revelation, and they've all been figurative, not literal. And we're going to have to keep that in mind because this passage is filled with figurative imagery. There's a dragon, there's chains, there's a bottomless pit, there's books. Brethren, none of those are literal. It's quite frankly ironic to think that all of those have to be understood as figurative, but the thousand years is literal. Now we're going to see it's all figurative, highly symbolic, but very beautiful. Listen to what Dennis Johnson said. The multiplication of visual features, key, chain, hand, dragon, throwing, locking, and sealing, underscores the symbolic um, genre of the entire vision, since John's audience knows well that Satan isn't a literal dragon who can be bound with a physical chain or locked away in a physical pit. All right? None of those are literal. They're all figurative or symbolic. Okay, so the first question as we're coming to Satan's binding has to be when. That's probably the first, uh, the most important of these four questions. When was Satan bound? Well, everywhere, as we'll see in a moment, Scripture teaches us Satan was bound at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now just go back in your mind for a second to the first promise of Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, what does that promise say? Something like this. That God will send the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. When did that promise get fulfilled? At the cross. And so we find that from the beginning it was promised that Satan would be bound, cast out, or crushed, all of which are biblical terms and basically and fundamentally mean the same thing, and all take place at the cross. Now let me show it to you from just one text. Back up very quickly to Matthew 12. And notice verse 29. Matthew 12, verse 29. This passage also speaks about a binding of Satan. And I suggest to you there's there's not two bindings of Satan. But if Revelation 20 speaks uh, about a binding of Satan and Matthew 12 speaks about a binding of Satan, then it just seems logical that they're speaking about the same binding. Uh, Matthew 12, and notice verse 28 and 29. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So what Jesus is saying here is, in response to the accusation that he's casting out demons by the devil, he says that's impossible because the devil doesn't cast out devils. I cast out devils by God. And I'm casting out devils by God because here soon I'm going to bind the strong man. And then having bound the strong man, I'm going to plunder his house. Now we're going to see here in a minute that that order is important. There's binding and there's plundering. Binding and plundering. 
Now, who is it who's uh, that who who is it who's in his house but the Gentiles by way of deception? So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to bind the stronger I'm, as the stronger than the strong man. I'm going to first bind him, and then I'm going to plunder his goods. And we're going to find that that's the same order of Revelation 20. He's bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And then Jesus, as we'll see here in a minute, in Acts 2, sends out his church into the world to, to preach the gospel to every creature throughout all of the nations. Why is that? Because Satan was bound. And so we find that before that, before Jesus' death and resurrection, the God, to borrow the language of Acts 17, suffered or allowed the nations to continue in darkness. Right? But now he's sending apostles into every nation, telling them to repent, and he's, and he's plundering Satan's house. How why is he plundering Satan's house? Because Satan's bound. And by the way, bound means limited. It doesn't mean inactive. It means limited. And we'll see in what way he's limited in a moment. All right, so the other text, we just don't have time to look at. You, you, you know those texts probably. The other five or seven texts in the New Testament that speak of Satan being bound or limited through the cross. Okay, uh, I, I do have a few more texts I want to come back to under, that, that will shed a little light on this first point. But we have to move on. We have a lot of stuff to cover. So the next question is, how long was he bound? Well, the text tells us a thousand years. Now, this phrase, a thousand years, is used four times in the Bible and never to a literal thousand years. Again, if we just let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let us let the Bible interpret the Bible. Psalm 94. For a thousand years in your sight are like, a, are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. 2 Peter 3.8, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. Again, the numbers in Revelation are highly symbolic. If everything else in Revelation 20 is symbolic, chain, dragon, bottomless pit, etc., then why wouldn't we think the sentence, the duration of the sentence is also symbolic? This is what Pastor Sam said. Uh, he said, if the prison may be referred to in symbolic language, so also may the prison sentence. And so by a thousand years is meant an indefinite period of time or that time between Jesus' first and second coming. Okay, this thousand years, the, the thousand years in this passage describes this present age, the time between Jesus' first First coming when Satan was bound and his second coming when Satan's cast into the lake of fire, right? All of that's found right here in Revelation chapter 20. Now that brings us then thirdly to ask or to answer this question, why was he bound? Well, notice Revelation 20 tells us so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. In other words, there's going to come a time prior to Jesus coming when Satan will again deceive the nations. Now just stop and think, brethren, how many texts tell us? How many texts tell us that prior to Jesus coming, Satan will deceive the world? 
Why is he going to deceive the world again? Because he's going to be loosed. But he isn't now at present. That's why the gospel is going forward. And that's why there is gospel success in this age. In other words, Satan is bound or limited through this age so that the gospel will advance into all the world. Now, you don't have to be post-millennial, brethren, to appreciate that fact. Because we believe that as all millennialists. We believe that the gospel is going forward because Satan's at present limited or bound as Jesus promised. As the stronger than the strong man, he's going to first bind the strong man and plunder his house. Jesus right now through his church brethren is plundering Satan's house. That is, he's saving sinners. Now, listen to what Lenski said. This binding of Satan means that he cannot prevent the spreading of the gospel to all the nations. Now, I do want to show it to you from one more text. Back up to John 12. And notice verse uh, 31 and 2. John 12, 31. So here we find uh, Satan's binding, but uh, under different imagery. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking about what will happen when he defeats Satan on the cross. When he crushes the head of the serpent on the cross. When he binds the strong man or when he casts him out. And notice the result of his binding or casting out. Verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, that is on the cross, because of his cross work and the, and the casting out of the devil, the binding of the devil, the crushing of the serpent's head, I will draw all peoples, that is Gentiles, to myself. In other words, it's because of Jesus' cross that his people will go into the world and proclaim a victorious gospel. And that ties back to, doesn't it, brethren, Revelation 20, and the specific purpose of Satan's binding. Here's the skeptic. Oh, you are millennials. You believe that Satan's bound, but how can Satan be bound if he's roaming about like a lion? Well, brethren, when we, how can he be cast out? Okay, well, I would just flip the table. How can he be, Jesus says he's going to be cast out at the cross. How can he be cast out and yet be a lion? Because the casting out of the binding is limited in nature. It's not when Jesus says that he's going to cast out the devil or when his head's going to be crushed or when he's going to be bound. It doesn't mean that he's going to be inactive. Just stop and think of a pit bull in the backyard of your neighbor who's chained up. He's limited, but don't get close. And that's like Satan. He's limited in the sense that he can no longer keep the nations in deception in the way he did before Jesus' cross work. Because remember what happened at Jesus' cross work slash resurrection. The nations were given to him. That's why he says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go into the world and plunder Satan's house. I'm getting ahead of myself because that's actually an application that I want to make. Why do you think the gospel didn't go into the nations until after Christ's crucifixion slash resurrection? Because it was then that the strong man was bound or he was cast out or his head was crushed. Okay, now that's Satan's binding. We have to move fast because 
I'm trying to cover the whole chapter. That brings us then secondly to saints reigning. Satan's binding. Secondly, saints reigning. Revelation 20, verse 4 and following. Now from the binding of Satan, which took place at Jesus' first coming, John now turns to the present and heavenly reign of the saints. Brethren, it's exceedingly important to keep in mind. Verses 4 to 6 doesn't describe saints reigning on earth in the future. It describes headless saints, bodiless saints, martyred saints reigning in heaven presently with Jesus. In fact, this term thrones, do you see it there? And I saw thrones is every time, every time it's used in the book of Revelation, it talks about, it describes that which takes place in heaven. Every time, like 24 times it's used. It's thrones in heaven, brother, and the focus goes to heaven, not to a thousand year literal reign in Jerusalem on earth. I, I just can't for the life of me, frankly put, comprehend how people can believe that. And a lot of people believe that. All right, where, where they reign, verse four. And I saw thrones as they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. They're reigning in heaven with Jesus. Again, brethren, just keep in mind what I've said so many times. If our interpretation of these texts goes far from the main intent of the book, we probably are going to err. What is the main point of the book? To encourage these beloved people that their beloved ones who died in Jesus are with Jesus reigning in heaven. How many times have we seen that? Kissamaker said the term throne occurs 47 times in Revelation. Apart from two times, the references to Satan's throne and the beast, it always refers to heaven. Then I saw the soul. See, these, these, are, these are bodiless, these are perfected spirits, brethren. Notice, of those who've been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. These are the saints who are on earth, loved ones who've died in Jesus. Again, that's kind of the whole point of the book of Revelation, to encourage them that their beloved um, family members and brethren who died in Jesus are in heaven with Jesus. They've been martyred for their faith. That's what it means when it says they've been beheaded. It, it, they, they, some of them were literally beheaded. But it doesn't mean they had to be literally beheaded. It just means they were martyred. And I don't think it's that, 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 that means only martyred saints. It means every faithful saint who dies in Jesus. Because notice how he goes on to say, uh, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or hands. How many times have we seen that over again, brethren? This is the description of the 144,000. This is the description. Remember, there's two types of people. Those who have the mark of the beast and those who don't. These are those who were faithful. These were the virgins. These were those who didn't commit fornication with the harlot. And many of them were martyred. And they're all at present when John writes this, reigning with Jesus in heaven for a thousand years. While the kingdom is advancing on earth because Satan's limited or bound, they're presently reigning with Jesus in heaven. 
So we believe in a millennial, brother. We believe in a thousand years. We believe that we're in it. And we believe saints reign in that millennial. We believe they, they reign in heaven with Jesus. And we also believe those on earth reign with Jesus. That we're all priests and kings. It's just that those in heaven are perfected spirit and spirits and they've been delivered from the body of this flesh. Now just think how encouraging that is to the poor saints in those seven churches. Oh, the kingdom's going to advance. Satan's bound. Jesus did what he promised he would do. He crushed the head of the serpent. And all authority has been given to him. And now we're advancing the kingdom. And he will have his people who are scattered throughout the four corners of this world. And by the way, in the meanwhile, your beloved family members who've died in Jesus are in heaven on thrones. So this refers to those who've died for their faith and now presently reign with Christ in heaven on thrones. That is, they reign presently with Jesus in heaven. How long do they reign? Verse 4. And they lived and reigned at the end of verse 4 with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6. They reigned with him for a thousand years. In other words, they're reigning in heaven with Jesus for the same duration that Satan's bound on earth. In other words, they're presently in heaven now, reigning with Jesus as the kingdom is presently advancing on earth. Again, listen to Kistemaker. John takes the reader behind the scenes and reveals what has happened to the martyrs who've died a physical death. They are alive. We're going to see that phrase. They are alive And in the presence of Christ. And they reign with him. While Satan is bound. Alright. And then finally. Why they reign. Verse 6. And I want to come back to verse 5. But notice verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so again, it's talking about a present reign, uh, uh, particularly of those martyr saints or those saints who died faithful in Jesus and they're presently reigning with him in heaven for a thousand years. And we find that the reason why they are in heaven reigning with Jesus, is because they've had a part in the first resurrection. Now let me say, if there's a first resurrection, then there's a second resurrection. And let me just give it to you kind of on the front end, and then we'll we'll look at some text to prove it. By first resurrection is meant a spiritual resurrection that takes place in the new birth. In other words, they got saved. They became a Christian. That's why they're in heaven. That's why the second death, what is the second death? The second death is hell, as we're going to see in a minute. Has no power over them, doesn't harm them. See, there's a first death that's physical. They did die physically, but the second death can't harm them. That's spiritual. Stop and think. Two deaths, two resurrections. There's a physical death which everybody experiences, and these saints experience it, those who are in heaven, they die. That's why they're soulless bodies, or uh, bodiless souls, Yeah, the other way around. Because they've died. But the 
spiritual death can't harm them. And so too, those who've experienced the first spiritual resurrection of necessity will experience the second physical resurrection, as we'll see here in a moment, at Jesus' second coming. So the point being is, the reason why they're at present in heaven, reigning with Jesus, and the lake of fire or the second death has no power over them, or they shall not experience that condemnation or that judgment or that punishment, is because they've been raised to newness of life by by virtue of their union with Jesus. Okay, let me show it to you from one text. Back up to what Jesus says in John 5. Now, I said that there's two resurrections, one's spiritual and one's physical, right? The first one's regeneration, the second one's glorification. And notice how Jesus speaks of both of them here. John 5, verse 24. Most surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and the second death shall not harm him. That's exactly what he means. And shall not come into judgment. But he's passed from death into life. Now that's a present spiritual resurrection. Every Christian has been spiritually raised from the dead. And then... Jesus says, there's a second resurrection, verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they're all going to come out of their graves. Now watch, verse 5 says that there's some who haven't partaken of the first resurrection, they haven't been saved, and they won't come to life, they won't come to life until the second resurrection. That's what verse 5 says back in in Revelation 20. I should have read it, but we'll go back and see it in a minute. That's talking about the unsaved who will be raised physically in the day of judgment. And that's what Jesus means when he says at the end of verse 25, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Listen. The resurrection that he's talking about uh, okay, I'm sorry. That's verse 25. Yeah, he's talking about, that's still the spiritual resurrection. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so those who are raised spiritually are described in verse 24 and 25. Now you move down a little bit further, verse 28. Do not marvel at this. Don't, don't marvel at this first resurrection, for there's a second resurrection. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Okay, So there's some who now live by virtue of the first resurrection and they're in heaven. That's what John says. And according to Revelation 25, there's others who won't come to to life again until the bodily resurrection. And that's those who aren't saved. And some are going to and they're going to come forth. Those who've done good. Now, just stop and think. John is obviously, brethren, obviously, obviously, obviously thinking back to this text. Because if you go back to Revelation 20 in your mind, he's going to talk about books being opened and those being judged by the things written in the book. They're going to be, everybody's going to be judged, the saved and unsaved, by their works done in the book, recorded in the books. And they're all going to come forth, that is, physically, in the bodily resurrection. And, and those who've done good to the resurrection of life. And those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So all men are going to experience the second resurrection, though not all men experience the first. 
All men experience the first or uh, the second resurrection because it's physical and bodily, but only those who are saved, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, experience that first resurrection that Jesus talks about in verse 24 and 25. All right, so let's go back to, and let me go back there and show you that. At the end of verse 4 of Revelation 20, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They lived, they believed on Jesus on earth, and they were saved, and they were spiritually raised from their spiritual tombs. And when they died, they went, they went to Jesus. But the rest of the dead, that is the non-saved, they don't live bodily. They're not raised again. They don't experience a resurrection until the thousand years are finished. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't mean, brethren, that the wicked dead aren't alive. The wicked dead are alive. We've seen that over and again through the book of Revelation. It just means to say they won't experience a resurrection unto the bodily resurrection. And that will be a resurrection unto condemnation. And that takes place after the thousand years. Or it takes place when Jesus comes back. Brethren, there's two resurrections in this passage. The first is spiritual. The second is physical. All right, notice then, we've seen, first of all, Satan's binding. Secondly, the saints reigning. That brings us then finally to verse 7, and Satan's loosening. Now, there's two things in these final verses, verses 7 to 15. In verses 7 to 10, Satan is defeated, and in verses 11 to 15, mankind is judged. Notice first, Satan is defeated. Revelation 27. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, now stop and think. Stop and think. Satan was bound at the cross. That means he was limited and could no longer deceive the nations as he previously did. Right? That's what Revelation 20 says. He was bound that, verse 3, he can no longer deceive the nations. But when he's loosed or he's no longer bound, just stop and think logically, then what's going to happen? Then he's going to go back to deceiving the nations. Brethren, isn't isn't that what the text says? Now when the thousand years have expired, Revelation 27, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8, and he will go out to deceive the nations. In other words, prior to Jesus coming, There's going to be a large falling away from the faith. There's texts that say that. And there's going to be a deception on the scale that we at at present know not. Brother, that's frankly put why I'm not post-millennial. Because things aren't going to get better before Jesus coming. Saints going to be loosed before Jesus coming. And things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. People are going to be deceived. Now, go, go, to, go to your mind, for example, to um, 2 Thessalonians 2. Remember that difficult text? 
where you have the Antichrist taking up residence within the temple. And then some of that's difficult and confusing to understand. And it's not the wisest uh, uh, route to try to interpret one difficult text with another difficult text. So we won't turn to that. But you remember, it's evident that prior to Jesus coming, when he destroys them with fire from his mouth, by the way, he had the same thing here in Revelation 20, what happens? Satan, Satan deceives the world. And, and remember, and God even allows it because they would not believe the truth, but they wanted to believe the lie. In other words, God himself loosed Satan from his, his prison. Brother, who loose, who bound Satan? Well, the same person who bound him, God, unbinds Satan, and that's God. And that's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. So the battle that's described here in verse 7, 8, and 9, and 10 is the same battle that we've seen before, brethren. And will go, verse 8, to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose numbers as a sand of the sea. Now we just saw a battle like this. And we saw one before that and before that. Are these multiple battles? Are there multiple second comings of Jesus? Are there multiple judgments? Some would say, yeah. No, it's describing the exact same thing. In fact, even this language, Gog and Magog, has already been used to describe the previous battles. You know why? It's the same battle. It's actually mentioned exactly twice earlier in chapter 6 and 19. And it refers to the same battle between Satan and his army and Christ and his. Now this phrase, uh, Gog and Magog, is taken from uh, Ezekiel 38 and 9, where Gog, the prince of Magog, Syria, gathered in war against God's people. And so that imagery of that last big effort of, of God's enemies to destroy God's people is taken kind of as the paradigm for that last great battle when Jesus comes back. But we find verse nine. Then they went up on the breath of the they they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven, heaven and devoured them. In other words, Jesus destroys them by the breath of his mouth, brethren. Remember, we saw that I think just last week with that sword that comes out of his mouth. By the way, last week we saw at the end of that um, sixth cycle that Jesus destroyed everybody and yet now he's destroying everybody again if these are two battles then how is there anybody left for him to destroy in chapter 20 if he's already destroyed them all in chapter 19 that's because they're the same battle brother just described from a slightly different angle and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the defeat of Satan. All right? And then you have the judgment of mankind. Verse 11 to 15. And these verses describe the single and final judgment of all men after the second resurrection. 
What is the second resurrection? It's the physical bodily resurrection of the dead. Righteous and unrighteous. Just and unjust. There's only one resurrection. And we saw it back in John 5. And it concerns all men saved and unsaved. So all men are raised from the dead. When are they raised from the dead? After the thousand years. That is when Jesus comes back. He raises them all from the dead. And then there's two set of books opened. The first concerns our works, which will be considered. And the other book is the book of life. Now stop and think for a second. John 5 said that everybody will be judged. And we read it in so many other places throughout the Bible. That all men will be judged by their works. Right? Jesus said that in John 5. Those who did good, they go to heaven. That's what he says. Those who did evil are raised to a resurrection of condemnation. And that's precisely what we have here. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great. This means every single person ever to ever have lived. Standing before God and books were opened. Okay? So you find that all men, dead, uh, all the dead, dead righteous and dead unrighteous, This is a bodily, physical, universal, single resurrection. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Okay? So there's two books. One of them contains a list of names. The other one contains a list of deeds. So the one that contains our works has recorded in these books all of the deeds of all men, just and unjust. And then there's another book called the Book of Life, as we'll see here in a minute, that contains the, the names of the elect. All right, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in it, who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. In other words, every single person, irrespective of how they died, even if they blew themselves up at the end of a tunnel, God is going to raise up that body and he's going to judge them based upon their deeds. But this judgment, brethren, to keep in mind, is of the just and the unjust. Now there's a humongous difference that I'm going to get to in a minute, but let's just underscore it and settle it once for all. There's one judgment and everybody will be present. Brother, nothing could be clearer than this, than this text with regards to that fact. We're all going to give an account, though we will all give an account very differently. But this is a universal, a universal single resurrection slash judgment. <clears throat> now the wicked will be judged or condemned because of their works, of their, of their sins. The righteous will be rewarded for theirs. And what makes the difference? The book of life. Verse 14, the death, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Why is it that there's going to be some raised and who stand before this great white throne judgment 
because we're all going to be there before the great white throne judgment. We're all going to be there. And why is it that there's going to be some there who won't fear the judge, but will love the judge, and won't be condemned by the judge, but rewarded and received by the judge, it's because they were written in the Lamb's book of life. Brethren, if those whose names were not found in the Lamb's book of life, then most evidently, were there before the great white throne of judgment, then most evidently, those whose names were written in it were also present. Everybody's present. And some, because their names were written in the Lamb's book of life, are not condemned. So put it together. Here's why they did good deeds. Here's why they did works of love and humility. It's because they were chosen before the foundation of the earth and Jesus came into, the, into this world with a specific focus on them and he died to, to redeem them and he gave the Holy Spirit to recover them and he enabled them by his grace and for his glory to do the very works that were preordained for them to do before the foundation of the world. In other words, the reason why they did these good deeds, the reason why they they did these good works is because they were his. He had saved them. He had washed them. He had cleansed them. He had filled them with his spirit. He had enabled them to walk in evangelical obedience to his commandments. It was all of grace, brethren. So while we're all judged by our works, we're all judged by our works Differently, those who are Christian are rewarded and they go to that judgment not in a state of condemnation, but in a state of reception. They're going before their father as Baitso told us Sunday last. We're going to stand before our beloved father for the sake of our beloved savior. And our works won't weigh us into hell but there'll be a cause of praise and adoration to the Lamb who rescued us from our sins and enabled us, not perfectly, but sincerely, to walk in obedience to his commandments. Listen to what Brooks says. All believers, along with everybody else, will have their lives reviewed in detail. We shall see more clearly than before what was the weight of our sins and corruptions and backslidings. You see, brethren... To any degree that our sins will be remembered in the day of judgment, they will be remembered so as to humble us and to cause us to give all the, all the more glory and honor to Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, it's a debated topic, actually. If you took ten Reformed systematic theolo- uh, theologies, five will say that our sins are never mentioned in any way at the day of judgment, and five will say they are. But they all ten say this, they will be remembered ultimately for the glory of the Lamb who sits upon the throne. And this is what he's saying. He's, he's suggesting that, that they will be in some way remembered. But notice the, the reason why. That we might see more clearly than before what was the weight of our sins and corruptions. That we shall also see more clearly and gloriously than ever before the largeness of God's 
grace in saving us and the perfection of Christ's work covering us and availing for us to bring us to God. So we shall have nothing to fear at that judgment. For Christ has already been judged in our place. The just for the unjust. All right, let's close then with three lessons, or better yet, observations. One, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, and they all start with that phrase, by the way, and then you might say, but how, why is it that you have these observations begun with this phrase, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, when there's no death and resurrection in, in the text? Brethren, if you think that still after 45 minutes, I haven't done my job very accurately. Because the whole point, Satan's binding, is because of what? Jesus' death and resurrection. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, the gospel will go forth throughout the world and it will find success. Remember what Jesus says by way of a motivation when he sends us out into the world to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them into local churches and teaching them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Satan has been defeated. He has been limited. He has been bound. The head of the serpent has been crushed. He has been casted out. Because of my cross work and my empty tomb, I'm sending you out into the world and you will of necessity gather into churches my blood-bought beloved people scattered into every nation and tribe throughout the whole four corners of this world. Listen to what Dr. Beeky says. He says, if you go to somebody's house and ring the doorbell, and you're greeted by a person holding a ferocious-looking dog on a leash, you hardly dare enter the house. But when the person says, it's all right, I've got him, that gives you enough confidence to enter. In the same way, the Lord Jesus says to us, it's all right, I've got Satan. In the future, I will let him loose for a little season. But right now, I've got him. Now is the time to evangelize the world. Now is the time to convert the Gentiles. Now is the time to preach the gospel to every living creature. The devil is a frightening sight. But I've got him. So off you go. Go. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go into the world and make disciples of every nation. Secondly, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, those who die in Christ presently live and reign with Christ. Brethren, that's kind of the point of this text. And tragedy of all tragedies. That wonderful, encouraging fact has been buried beneath all Manner of crazy interpretations. Remember, the point of the book of Revelation is to what? Encourage these, these beloved Christians in these seven churches, especially concerning the fact that their loved ones had been martyred for Jesus. And what Paul says to them is, look. Look at the end of verse 4. And they lived 
and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is what Paul, this is what John is saying to these Christians. Your beloved husband, your beloved wife, your beloved mama or daddy, son or daughter or neighbor or pastor who loved Jesus to the end and was martyred, was hated by this wicked, evil world and was perhaps even put to death for Jesus. They are presently alive and reigning with Jesus and they will reign with Jesus until Jesus comes back at the end of this thousand year, at the end of the millennium, when he comes back with his saints. That's the point. And it's because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's because they've they've shared in the first resurrection. They've been born again from above. They, Because of their union with Christ, they've been raised from spiritual death. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Brother, just stop and think of a Christian in the Middle East who's been beheaded by some wicked, wicked, wicked man. And there's his body laying right there in the sand, his head severed from the shoulders. But you know what? That Christian is alive. And he's presently reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And when Christ comes back, he'll come with Christ. And then he'll experience with all of God's people the second resurrection, which is bodily. Brethren, just stop and think. They, they, these people have seen this. They've seen their loved ones tore limb from limb by lions. They've seen their loved ones um, crucified or sometimes even covered in pitch and, and, and burned alive. They, they saw that. And this is what John is saying. They're alive and they're reigning with Jesus because they've experienced the first resurrection. They've been forgiven. They've passed from death out of life in their conversion. Their sins have been all pardoned for the sake of Christ. And they're presently perfected spirits who are worshiping the Lamb in heaven. Thirdly, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, Christians will stand before the judgment throne without fear. Without carnal dread and fear. All the just brothers stop and think the books opened. Can you I mean, just how in a sense, if we if, if we just stop and think and, and, and we're honest for a second, that's that that can be very fearful. You mean every thought I ever thought? You mean every wayward look? You mean God saw me up there when nobody else did? You mean from the very beginning when I was a wee lad doing those things all the way up until the day I died, every single thought, every single deed, every single motive has been written down in these massive books and they're going to be open in the day of judgment? Brother, what confidence can a, can a man or a woman or a boy or girl have to go into that day of judgment knowing that, but that there'll be another book open? And that other book is the, is the Lamb's book of life. And in there, there's a, there's a list of names for whom Jesus died and shed his blood and covered over all of their sins. So that irrespective to the degree that our sins we mention in the day of judgment, it will only result in us falling before the throne with hearts filled with adoration for the one 
who was slain in our place. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, Christians will stand before the judgment throne without fear. Brother, what a tremendous passage this is. But you know what? To be frank about it, I think it even gets better because I think John saved the best for last in chapters 21 and 2. And we'll come to that, God willing, next week. Well, let's stand and close.